Section 41 of the World War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brittany Bogle. The World Story, Volume 15, The World War, edited by Horatio W. Dresser. Section 41, The Attack on Tsingtao, 1914, by Jefferson Jones. The campaign in the Far East began with the proclamation by the Japanese government that Japan would prepare for war in behalf of England, August 4th. Two days later, the Germans began to fortify Qingtao, and the next day, Japanese warships appeared off the coast. On the 16th, Japan sent an ultimatum to Germany, demanding the withdrawal of the German fleet in far eastern waters and the giving up of Qiaochao. Germany rejected Japan's demands, and the Kaiser ordered resistance at Qiaochao, August 22nd. Japan declared war on Germany the following day, and the Germans began action on the 24th by blowing up bridges to halt the Japanese invasion. The first Japanese troops were landed on the 30th. Two islands were occupied the next day, and seven more on September 3rd. After several minor actions, Qingtao was invested September 29th. The city was in flames November 1st. The Japanese captured German guns and prisoners on the 4th, and November 6th, the fortress was surrendered by the Germans. The following account of the attack is by a correspondent of the Minneapolis Journal and the Japan Advertiser. The Editor. Japanese Headquarters, Shantung, November 2nd. I have seen war from a grandstand seat. I never before heard of the possibility of witnessing a modern battle the attack of warships, the fire of infantry and artillery, the maneuvering of airships over the enemy's lines, the rolling up from the rear of reinforcements and supplies, all at one sweep of the eye. Yet after watching for three days the siege of Qingtao from a position on Prince Heinrichburg, 1,000 feet above the sea level and but three miles from the beleaguered city, I am sure that there is actually such a thing as a theater of war. On October 31st, the date of the anniversary of the birth of the Emperor of Japan, the actual bombardment of Qingtao began. All of the residents of the little Chinese village of Chengsun, where was fixed on that day the acting staff headquarters of the Japanese troops, had been awakened early in the morning by the roar of a German aeroplane over the village. Everyone quickly dressed and after a hasty breakfast went out to the southern edge of the village to gaze towards Qingtao. A great black column of smoke was arising from the city and hung like a pall over the besieged. At first glance, it seemed that one of the neighboring hills had turned into an active volcano and was emitting this column of smoke, but it was soon learned that the oil tanks in Qingtao were on fire. As the bombardment was scheduled to start late in the morning, we were invited to accompany members of the staff of the Japanese and British Expeditionary Forces on a trip to Prince Heinrichburg, there to watch the investment of the city. It was about a three-mile journey to this mountain, which had been the scene of some severe fighting between the German and Japanese troops earlier in the month. When we arrived at the summit, there was the theater of war laid out before us like a map. To the left were the Japanese and British cruisers in the Yellow Sea, preparing for the bombardment. Below was the Japanese battery stationed near the Meeker House, which the Germans had burned in their retreat from the mountains. 
Directly ahead was the city of Qingtao, with the Austrian cruiser Kaiser and Elizabeth steaming about in the harbor, while to the right one could see the Kiaochao coast and central forts and redoubts and the entrenched Japanese and British camps. We had just couched ourselves comfortably between some large jagged rocks where we felt sure we were not in a direct line with the enemy's guns, when suddenly there was a flash as if someone had turned a large golden mirror in the field down below to the right. A little column of black smoke drifted away from one of the Japanese trenches, and a minute later those of us on the peak of Prince Heinrich heard the sharp report of a field gun. "'Gentlemen, the show has started,' said the British captain as he removed his cap and started adjusting his opera glass. No sooner had he said this than the reports of guns came from all directions with a continuous rumble as if a giant bowling alley were in use. Everywhere, the valley at the rear of Qingtao was alive with golden flashes from discharging guns, and at the same time great clouds of bluish-white smoke would suddenly spring up around the German batteries where some Japanese shell had burst. Over near the greater harbor of Qingtao, we could see flames licking up the Standard Oil Company's large tanks. We afterwards learned that these had been set on fire by the Germans and not by the bursting shell. And then the warships in the Yellow Sea opened fire on Iltis Fort, and for three hours we continually played our glasses on the field, on Qingtao and on the warships. With glasses on the central redoubt of the Germans, we watched the effects of the Japanese fire until the boom of guns from the German Fort A on a little peninsula jutting out from the Kiaochao Bay toward the east attracted our attention there. We could see the big siege gun on this fort rise up over the bunker, aim at a warship, fire, and then quickly go down again. And then we would turn our eyes toward the warships in time to see a fountain of water 200 yards from a vessel where the shell had struck. We scanned the city of Qingtao, the 150-ton crane in the greater harbor, which we had seen earlier in the day, and which was said to be the largest crane in the world, had disappeared, and only its base remained standing. A Japanese shell had carried away the crane. But this first day's firing of the Japanese investing troops was mainly to test the range of the different batteries. The attempt also was made to silence the line of forts extending in the east from Iltis Hill near the wireless and signal stations at the rear of Qingtao to the coast fort near the burning oil tank on the west. In this, they were partly successful, two guns at Iltis Fort being silenced by the guns at sea. On November 1st, the second day of the bombardment, we again stationed ourselves on the peak of Prince Heinrich Berg. From the earliest hours of morning, the Japanese and British forces had kept up a continuous fire on the German redoubts in front of the Iltis, Moltke, and Bismarck forts, and when we arrived at our seats, it seemed as though the shells were dropping around the German trenches every minute. Particularly on the redoubt of Taichung Chen was the Japanese fire heavy, and by early afternoon, through field glasses, this German redoubt appeared to have had an attack of smallpox, so pitted was it from the holes made by bursting Japanese shells. By nightfall, many parts of the German redoubts had been destroyed, together with some machine guns. The result was the advancing of the Japanese line several hundred yards from the bottom of the hills where they had rested earlier in the day. It was not until the third day of the bombardment that those of us stationed on Prince Heinrich observed that our theater of war had a curtain, a real asbestos one, that screened the fire in the drops directly ahead of us from our eyes. We had learned that the theater was equipped with pits, drops, a gallery for onlookers, exits, and an orchestra of booming cannon and rippling, roaring pom-poms, but that nature had provided it with a curtain. That was something new to us. 
We had reached the summit of the mountain about 11 a.m., just as some heavy clouds, evidently disturbed by the bombardment during the previous night, were dropping down into Litsen Valley and in front of Qingtao. For three hours we sat on the peak, shivering in a blast from the sea, and all the while wondering just what was being enacted beyond the curtain. The firing had suddenly ceased, and with the filmy haze before our eyes we conjured up pictures of the Japanese troops making the general attack upon Ilta's fort, evidently the key to Qingtao, while the curtain of the theater of war was down. By early afternoon the clouds lifted, and with glasses we were able to distinguish fresh sappings of the Japanese infantry nearer to the German redoubts. The Japanese guns, which the day before were stationed below us to the left, near the Meeker House, had advanced half a mile and were on the road just outside the village of Taoyao. Turning our glasses on Kiao Chao Bay, we discovered that the Kaiser and Elizabeth was missing, nor did a search of the shoreline reveal her. Whether she was blown up by the Germans or had hidden behind one of the islands, I do not know. All the guns were silent now, and the British captain said, "'Well, chaps, shall we take advantage of the intermission?' A half hour later we were down the mountain and riding homeward toward Shantung. To understand fully the operations of the Japanese troops in Shantung during the present Far Eastern War, one must be acquainted with the topography of this peninsula, as well as with the conditions that exist for the successful movements of the troops. Since the disembarkation of the Japanese army on September 2nd, everything had seemingly favored the Germans. The country, which is unusually mountainous, offering natural strongholds for resisting the invading army, is practically devoid of roads in the hinterland. To add to this difficulty, the last two months in Shantung have seen heavy rains and floods, which have really aided in holding off the ultimate fall of Chao. One had only to see the road from Lanshan over Makung Pass, on which the Japanese troops were forced to rely for their supplies, partly to understand the reason for the German garrison at Xingtao still holding out. The road, especially near the base, is nothing but a sea of clay, in which the military carts sink up to their hubs. Frequent rains every week keep the roadway softened up and thus render it necessary for the Japanese infantry to rebuild it and to construct drainage ditches in order that there may be no delay in getting supplies and ammunition to the troops at the front. The physical characteristics of Chao make it an ideal fortress. The entrance of the bay is nearly two miles wide and is commanded by hills rising 600 feet directly in the rear of Qingtao. The ring of hills that surrounds the city does not extend back into the hinterland, and thus there is no screen behind which the Japanese forces can quickly infest the city. Germany has utilized the semicircle of hills in the construction of large concrete forts equipped with Krupp guns of 14- and 16-inch caliber, which for four or five miles back into the peninsula command all approaches to the city. The Japanese army, in approaching Qingtao, has had to do so practically in the open. The troops found no hills behind which they could, with safety, mount heavy siege guns without detection by the German garrison. In fact, the strategic plan for the capture of the town has been much like the plan adopted by the Japanese forces at Port Arthur. They have forced their approach by sappings. While this is a gradual method, it is certain of victory in the end and results in very little loss of life. The natural elevations of the Iltis, Bismarck, and Moltke forts at the rear of Qingtao have another advantage in that they are so situated that they are commanded by at least two other forts. All of the guns have been placed so that they can be turned on their neighbor if the occasion arises. 
A Japanese aeroplane soaring over Qingtao on October 30th scattered thousands of paper handbills on which was printed the following announcement in German from the staff headquarters. To the honored officers and men in the fortress, it is against the will of God as well as the principles of humanity to destroy and render useless arms, ships of war, merchantmen, and other works and constructions not in obedience to the necessity of war, but merely out of spite, lest they fall into the hands of the enemy. Trusting as we do that, as you hold dear the honor of civilization, you will not be betrayed into such base conduct. We beg you, however, to announce to us your own view as mentioned above. End of section 41. This recording is in the public domain.